You know, in, in recent weeks, uh, a lot has been said on TV, a lot has been said in the news, and, and maybe even in some of your own conversations that you've been having at home about all of us getting used to a, a new normal. It, it's an acknowledgement that, that things are not as they should be, uh, they're definitely not as they've been, and when those moments happen to us, it, it can be incredibly disorienting. Uh, Obviously, we have people joining us from, from lots of places right now since we're online, but if you're a member of our faith community here at Lake Merced, then you know full well that we're in the midst of our own specific season of disorientation. You know, just a week ago, we had to say goodbye to someone who's, who's kind of defined normal for us for half a century at this church, someone who's, who's been a rock for our community of people. And so if, if you're one of us, this season is something of, of a double whammy, isn't it? I mean, nothing is as it's been. Nothing feels or seems as it should. And it can be terribly difficult to come to grips with, with all of that, all the change. And so in the midst of, of all the things that this season represents for us and for you and for me, uh, as we march toward the, the fullness of what today represents for us as Christians, I have one truth that I want you to consider. What, what if we have never really lived in a state of normal? What, what if a, a new normal is all we've ever actually known? You know, some of you watching this right now might be 18 years old, and, and others of you watching might be 80 years old. And what's normal to each of you listening right now is in many ways different, or it's not normal to the other person. For, for some of you, Elvis Presley feels like very normal music, and for others of you, Post Malone feels like very normal music. Uh, and there's probably some of you going, who's that? But, but that's not the normal I, I really want you to consider. I want you to think deeper than that. I want you to think more abstract than that, and, and more big picture. Because if I were to ask you to tell me about your origin story, you might be tempted to try to tell me a story about some labor and delivery room in, in such and such a time and in such and such a place. But what you may have never stopped to realize is that your story goes back much further than even that one. Your story doesn't begin individually in a hospital. Your story begins in a garden because you are part of a community. And so as the story of humanity is introduced in scripture, in the Bible, in the opening pages of the book of Genesis, the, the text simply says this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made, made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, a lot is, is made of this moment in legend that, that God made a man and he named that man Adam, and then subsequently he made a woman whom the man then named Eve. But that's not really actually what the Bible says. In fact, Adam's 
not, as, not a name as much as it is a description. It's, a, it's the Hebrew word, Adam, meaning man or humanity. Uh, and it's something of a, of a play on words as Adamah simply means earth or, or the very thing that mankind was made from, the, the dust of the ground. That's what he's named after. And in the beginning, the, the two people we are introduced to are Ish, male, and Isha, female. And I have it on good authority that, that one of those two people groups probably represents you. And so your story, whether you realize it or not, it began in a garden. And, and it wasn't just any garden as we tend to think of gardens, but it was, it was a garden that was special. You know, special for two reasons, in no particular order. Number one, the garden contained the tree of life. It was, a, it was a tree that promised eternal life for the one who ate from it. But number two, the garden contained the person of God himself. When we go to, to Genesis chapter 3, probably about the third page of your Bible, it, it paints a picture of God himself walking among Adam, walking among Adam, walking among humanity within the presence of the garden. You see, the garden was special because it, it represented togetherness with God, true and total communion with God. You see, that was the normal that God created. Have you ever stopped to realize that? That was normal. Of course, you probably know the rest of this part of the story. Man and woman, woman and man, right? They're, they're tempted, they're seduced by a, a deceiver who promises that they can become like God if they'd only eat from a tree that they were told to avoid, a tree that they were told not to eat from, a tree that would not bring life, but would bring death. And in their curiosity and their, their subtle seduction of, of power and control, Ish and Isha, Adam and Eve, with one bite from that which was forbidden, thrust themselves into a new normal. You know, a, a lot is, is made of the, the consequences that came from that decision, the, the consequences that God passed down to them. Hard work, pain in childbirth, you know, even death. We talk a lot about those things, but I want you to consider something that, that I believe whether we realize it or not, was likely far greater and far more costly than even that. Verse 22 of chapter 3 in Genesis says, and the, and the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, pay attention to that, and eat and live forever. And so the Lord God banished him, banished him, from the garden. And all of this, we're told, was to guard the way to the tree of life. To guard the way to the tree of life. And what emerged from this scene was vital for us to understand. Because there, there was now this, this enclosed garden, God's garden, the place in which he walked. And then on the other side was, was mankind, the, the very creature that was exclusively made to bear his image. And they were now outside, 
God was inside and man was outside. And, and they weren't allowed back in. This was their new normal. This was their social distancing. This was their isolation. And, and I want you just to stop where you are right now, and I want you to sit in that for just a moment. You know, as, as many of you feel removed from the normal that you've come to know, you know, for many of you, you aren't leaving your house. You aren't going into work anymore. You aren't seeing friends. You aren't seeing family. You aren't going on, on camping trips or to the beach. Everything has changed. Everything. And you're feeling the weight of that right now. Well, the same was true of Adam and Eve. That by page three in your Bibles, everything had changed for them. What they had known, they had now been cut off from. And so their, their withness or their togetherness with God was seemingly no more. And yet in God's love for his creation, in his love for humanity, and in his pursuit of togetherness with us, God would begin to piece together a pathway for hope, a pathway for communion with him once again. And it began with a man, a man named Abraham. And it continued from Abraham throughout the generations, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, all the generations that would follow him until that climactic moment where God would raise up Moses as a deliverer for his chosen people from the captivity, the slavery that they were in and that they were suffering in. And in one fell swoop, God would break the will. He would break the hard heart of Pharaoh who was enslaving them as he sent this series of, of 10 plagues on the land each time protecting his chosen people, protecting Israel. And it was the 10th and it was the final plague that was going to foreshadow God's great rescue plan. Because there in that 10th plague, God would reveal something that would change the course of history as we know it. You know, death can be given to and it can be placed on another. Death can be placed on a substitute. That's what the people learned that day. The text says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb, pay attention to that language, for his family. Take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of their houses where they eat the lambs. And so that same night, they're to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with the, the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12 says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt, and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. He says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, he says, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. He says, this is a day that you are to commemorate. 
For the generations to come, he says, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a, a lasting ordinance, the text says. And so as evening struck and death came through the land, God's chosen people would be spared from the death that had been promised. They had been passed over. Guys, God was at work in ways that they never could have foreseen, never could have imagined. Because the years that followed would be filled with, with time spent in the wilderness, wandering around. But as the people looked to the center of their camps, and eventually to the center of their holy city, there in the tabernacle, there in the temple, a, a cloud would descend among them. And that cloud was a sign that God was not and had not given up on withness with his people, togetherness with his people. Yes, they may not be in the garden, and they may still yet be sinful, but God was going to pursue them. He was going to pursue us, you and me, and he was going to do it at any cost. Any cost. From the, the days of Abraham through the, the days of King David and, and beyond, God had, had spoken to his chosen people. And, and he'd done so through a select few individuals. We, we, we call them or know them as prophets. And, and through these prophets, over, over the course of many years, God would speak to his people and he would tell them of one who was yet to come an anointed one, a, a Messiah, later we would call that a Christ. And so the people waited in eager expectation for the Messiah to arrive, believing that when he finally did, that the people of God would finally find favor. They'd finally find dominion over the earth and their kingdom would be established. They weren't wrong and they weren't entirely right either. You know, last week as we reflected on the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the, the people believed this was going to be their moment, that the time when the kingdom would finally be established, when they'd finally realize hundreds of years of prophecy about a coming king, when it would finally come true. And so they gathered in the streets with palm branches. They laid their cloaks on the ground and they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet as Jesus settled into the city of Jerusalem that week, he quickly demonstrated something else, a much different tone, a much different purpose than what they imagined. He was there to rebuke the religious people, to, to correct them. He was there, to, frankly, to question everything. And he knew something they didn't. That, that his tone, his words, his questions were going to cost them. They were going to cost him his life. And so Jesus arrived in Jerusalem in a familiar time. It was that time to celebrate that lasting ordinance that we spoke about just a few minutes ago. It was time to celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. It was a time for Passover, a commemoration of when death had passed over God's people. 
And, and it was the desire for, for all faithful Jewish men and women to really celebrate this festival in Jerusalem. And so the city at this time was full of people, people who'd, who'd saved money and they'd traveled from hundreds or thousands of miles away just to be here in the holy city during Holy Week. And so Jesus gathered with his closest friends, his disciples in the upper room of a house to enjoy a Passover meal with them. Again, a foreshadowing of what was to come before withdrawing to a private place to spend the evening and to prepare, frankly, for what was to come. You know, there's four Gospels. When we read Luke's Gospel, he only tells us that this was on the Mount of Olives, just, just outside the city. But Mark's Gospel tells us a little bit more. He, he calls the place Gethsemane, or, or like olive press or oil press. And so there in Gethsemane, Jesus gathered once more with some of his closest disciples, with, with Peter and James and John. And in John's gospel, we learn a little bit more. You see, as Jesus gathered in a, in a quiet place on the Mount of Olives, he's, he's likely on private property. He's likely in land owned by, by somebody maybe wealthy that he knew, somebody uh, who had this kind of land that could give him a private place. And so this was the place that he would withdraw. After a day spent teaching at the temple, he would come here to rest. And John says something interesting about this piece of land. It's not just land. John calls it a garden. It was in a garden that the son would escape to go be with the father in prayer. It was in a garden where Jesus would practice togetherness to be with his closest friends, to be with his followers, his disciples. And as we'll see in, in just a moment, it was in a garden where the serpent would slither in sort of metaphorically once again to reintroduce sin and death. Jesus prayed with focus that night. Luke tells us that, that he was in anguish and that he prayed earnestly and that his sweat was like, was like drops of blood hitting the ground. And his prayer that night was simple, but it was powerful. He said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup, this wrath, this suffering from me, yet not my will, not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus cried out, and he's, it's like he's saying, if there is any other way, Father, please reveal it. Please release me from this. Please rescue me. But it's not my will. I want yours to be done. You see, God's plan dating back to the very beginning was in full motion. From the time when Abraham was tasked with, with sacrificing his one and only son, only to be delivered from that at the very last moment, God had been tipping his hand, giving a glimpse of what was to come. A father would sacrifice his one and only son, but Jesus would not receive the same deliverance that Isaac did. The father was going to do what Abraham never had to. And so the serpent approached. Judas, knowing where to find Jesus, 
knowing as a close friend of his where Jesus would escape to, where he spent time in prayer, where the masses would, would never see, where they would never be witness to what was to come, he turned Jesus over to his accusers with a betraying kiss. And so Jesus, much like Adam and much like Eve, would be removed from a garden, yet not as the guilty people they were, but as an innocent man, a, a spotless man, a pure man. And so in the hours to come, he would be dragged before the Jewish court. Uh, we, we call it the Sanhedrin, where they'd, they'd charge him with blasphemy, with heresy. Why? <laughs> Because he claimed to be a king. Because he claimed to be exactly who he was. The, the son of God. The I am. And so for claiming to be himself, they, they were going to recommend the death penalty for this man. And yet not wanting his blood on their hands because of their righteousness, they take him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, yeah, yes, it is as you say. And so Pilate listened. But all he saw in this moment was an innocent man. And so he said, well, it's time for you to go see Herod. And so he sent him to Herod the Tetrarch, the, the ruler over Galilee. But other than being a, kind of amused by Jesus or intrigued by Jesus, Herod saw, saw little to be concerned with. He saw little of importance. And so he mocked Jesus and he sent him back. He said, Pilate, here's your, here's your problem. But this time the, the religious authorities play their trump card. They, they play the hand that would sway the mind of this resistant Pilate. They say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's because anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And what you may not realize in a sense right now is that they're making it known to Pilate, a Pilate, if you do not do as we wish, we are going to report you to Rome for allowing civil disorder, something that Pilate knew would get him removed in the Roman Empire. He was going to be fired from his position as governor if they went to Rome with this. And so Pilate did the thing that a lot of us in our cynicism have come to expect from politicians. Uh, one commentator put it like this. He said, he sacrificed justice rather than lose his post. He sentenced Jesus to death in order that he might remain in power. He was power hungry. Does that sound familiar? And so in this man named Barabbas, this convicted murderer, the people made clear that they would rather the guilty be released to them so that this innocent man would be put down instead. And so as you know, Jesus is flogged, he's beaten, and he's marched through the streets. He's nailed to a cross, and he's placed in the middle of these, these two other guilty men, both criminals. And there in that moment, Jesus spoke some of the most beautiful words that have ever been spoken. He said, Father, forgive them, 
They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And I don't, I don't want to rush past those words here. I want you to think about what Jesus is saying. Because in this moment of pain, in this moment of agony at death's doorstep, what is Jesus concerned with? What is he praying for? He's praying that his accusers, his beaters, his crucifiers would be forgiven. Forgiven. I I don't know about you, but if I so much as hit my head on something accidentally, like my first reaction of the flesh is to like ball my fists up and to retaliate, to lash out. But what does Jesus do here? He speaks words of forgiveness. And so within a few hours, Luke tells us that that darkness would cover the whole land, that the, the temple curtain, the place where the presence of God was kept separate from the priests, from the people, the temple curtain would be torn in two. And Jesus would cry out one last time before breathing his last breath, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And just like that, church, he was gone. In an instant, like that, gone. He was gone. And I want you to think about this in light of what you may have lost here in this last month. Because your life has changed. At the very least, you've lost something. You've lost some freedom. You've lost the freedom to go where you please. You've lost the freedom to be with your friends, to be with family. You've lost the freedom to gather here with your church family. You've lost the freedom to celebrate births, to celebrate graduations, to celebrate weddings, to even celebrate the lives of loved ones with funerals. Many of you have lost jobs. You've lost income. And in the months to come, let's be honest, some of us will lose homes, will lose cars, will lose retirements and careers and comfort. And if the last four weeks have shown us anything, it's that some of us will even lose our lives. This has been the costliest moment in in probably most of our lives at least from a community standpoint. Certainly individuals have lost more, but in terms of an entire community, entire globe, I mean, these are unprecedented times. And so I want you to sit with that reality right now. I want you to sit in that pain right now. Do you feel that? I don't know what word you use. What do you call this? Is it, is it despair? Is it hopelessness? Is it, is it fear? Are you scared? Is this sorrow? Is it angst? Is it anguish? Is it stress? Is it uncertainty? I mean, get out your thesaurus. There's there's lots of words that describe our reality right now. And for Jesus' followers, those who'd walked away from everything to follow this man, and their loss, their angst, their uncertainty was worse. Because 
<laughs> they'd put all their eggs in the Jesus basket. They gave up everything to follow him. They invested everything to follow him. And what did they have to show for it? What was their, their return? It was, it was nothing. They bet their entire retirement on the Jesus stock, and it just went belly up. They lost everything to their name. Everything. A lot of us know some of what that feels like right now, but only some. And yet if they'd been listening along the way, none of this should have surprised them. Jesus told them this would happen before he ever entered the city to shouts of Hosanna. The text says that Jesus took the 12 aside and he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will insult him. They will spit on him. And then they will flog him and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And the text says, <laughs> the disciples did not understand any of this. That its meaning was hidden from them. And they didn't know what he was even talking about. Well, in their despair, soon, soon they will. You know, as Jesus hung on a cross between two guilty men, their words and reactions to him couldn't have been more different. On one side, one insulted him. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the anointed one? Save yourself and us. And yet the second rebuked the first. <laughs> Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And as he finished, he looked to Jesus with one request. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Don't forget me. It was a display of, of faith and confidence in who Jesus is and who he was. It was the same kind of faith that caused a woman to reach out and to touch Jesus' garment, believing that she would be healed simply by doing that. It was the same kind of faith that, that caused a Roman centurion whose son was dying to tell Jesus, hey, just say the word. I have enough faith. Just say the word. He'll be healed. It was the kind of faith that can move mountains. And so Jesus is hearing his plea, hearing his faith uttered, and he says these words back to him. He says, truly, I tell you, you will be with me in paradise. You know, that, that word paradise kind of confuses us some because it's part of our, our everyday language. It's that, that place that we all want to go to, right? 
It's that, that place of, of bliss when the, the weather is perfect and the oceans are clear and the breeze is cool. Paradise is where, where everything is as we want it to be. And yet when, when Jesus and those in his day would have referenced paradise then, it had a, an almost entirely different meaning. Uh, paradise is, it comes from a Persian word. And do you know what that word means? It means enclosed garden or walled garden. Guys, Jesus isn't inviting this man to like some undefined place of bliss. He's inviting this, this criminal who's hanging on a cross into relationship with the Father. He, he's, he's promising him togetherness with God, togetherness with Jesus. What did Jesus say? He said, today you will be with me. It's the kind of community that hasn't been seen in its fullness since the first moments of creation. But, but Jesus is about to change everything because Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. And so what Jesus is about to do gets rid of all sin. It gets rid of all death. He's moments away from dying that death for the robber, for you and me, for us. And that barrier that God put up to guard the tree of life, man, it's about to come crashing down. I don't know if you know this, but John writes in Revelation, uh, beginning in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The, the walled garden is open. Are you, are you getting this? In Revelation 22, John reveals another vision. He says, Then the, the angel showed me the, the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the, the throne of God and of the Lamb. That, that, there's that word again. And down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. He says in verse 3, No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Do you understand? Like that is what we're celebrating today. You know, you may be hearing this message about Jesus for the, for the very first time this morning. I don't know. And man, if that's you, I, I want you to know that, that this is the mystery that God has made known to us through his son, Jesus. You've undoubtedly heard the name Jesus. This is what Jesus is all about. 
that whatever Adam and Eve did in the garden to, to mess everything up, guys, it's been handled. Everything that was broken has been fixed. It's been made right in God's eyes. We have a word for that. We call that justified. And so for those who believe in Jesus, the Bible tells us that he paid a debt that you and I couldn't pay so that we might find that, that true withness, that true togetherness, that true communion with God, our, our maker, the, the God who made us in our image. What I want you to begin to see is that the Garden of Eden that they were kicked out of, man, that's been restored. And the tree of life is, is available to eat from again. And guess what? Just for good measure, God's not done yet. The text says on the, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. And those three words, say them with me. He has risen. He has risen. If you have been in the church for any number of years, even if you haven't been in the church, you've probably heard those three words uh, uttered again and again and again. And if I can have one bit of encouragement for you this morning, it's probably this. Do not let those words become cliche. Do not let those words become cliche. He is risen. Guys, for all of time, dead people have always stayed dead, unless, unless Jesus raised them. And most certainly, dead people can never raise themselves. But, but just to show you exactly who Jesus is, not only the wind and the waves obey him, but even life and death. Because just like Jesus had said would happen on the third day after his death, Jesus' eyes opened on the first day of a new week and changed everything. Because think about this, if death wasn't permanent, then Satan no longer has power. He no longer has power for those who believe in and put their trust in Jesus. You know, Lake said, we've spent the entire first four months of the year, the first third of the year, talking about our annual theme of, of FUSE. It's an acronym for fellowship and understanding, service, evangelism, devotion. Well, this moment right now, this is the culmination of it all. This is everything. Guys, Jesus died so that we might be fused with the Father. It's about withness. It's about togetherness. 
But Jesus didn't stay dead because he sits today at the right hand of God. He is a king in his kingdom on a throne that will never end. And he invites you and me, both of us, to be children of God. Guys, church, friends, whoever you may be, wherever you may be tuning in and joining us from this morning, I want to speak directly with you for just a second. This, this COVID thing, this shelter-in-place thing, is hard. It's hard. And for every single one of us, it represents kind of a new normal. But I want to level with you. I want to say this. Because there isn't a single thing happening right now that God doesn't have an answer for. There isn't a single thing happening right now that God doesn't have dominion over. Guys, God is Lord of it all. He's Lord of it all. And so whatever we've lived our entire lives feeling was, was quote-unquote normal, man, I'm here to tell you something. It wasn't. It wasn't normal. And when we get comfortable, it's easy to think that that was the way things should have always been. That was the way things should be. And it wasn't. The, the normal that God created was for you and for me, for us, as image bearers of God, the, the apple of his eye, to be in eternal relationship and fellowship with him. That is the normal that all of us forgot about a long time ago. And there isn't a single thing any virus can do that, that's going to stand in the way of, of restoration or of salvation. Nothing that is going to happen can stand in the way of the salvation that Jesus has for you. Not a single thing. And so Jesus, in his resurrection, invites you now to the Father. He invites you into the garden. And in that garden, he invites you to talk with God, to walk with God, to give your burdens over to God. And I don't know you, and I don't know what, what burdens you're bearing right now. But I know God does. He knows them better than you do. And I promise you, he has an answer for you if you'll seek him. Church, Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. And that is a new normal that we can all embrace. And so if you'd like to receive that togetherness with God... If you'd like to be with Jesus in paradise, man, I want to invite you to that today. I know times are strange, and so connecting with us is, is different than it ever has been. But you probably have email. And so if you'd open up your email and you'd write an email to questions at lakemercedchurch.com, we would love to give you more information. We would love to help you receive Jesus into your life. We would love to help you find everlasting salvation in him. And so if you would reach out to us and email us, we'll talk with you about what that looks like. We'll hold your hand. We'll walk with you along that path. We want you to find eternal life in Jesus. That's why he did all of this. 
And he would have done it if it was only for you. He would have done it if it was only for me. And, and I'm here to tell you right now I needed it. Man, I needed it. And so, church, I, I, pray, I pray that you do. You know, Jesus loves you. There's another cliche phrase that we, we often gloss over. But Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. And he raised for you. He did all of that in your place. And right now, he's waiting for you in the garden of God. He's waiting for you in paradise. I plan to be there. And I hope to see you there as well. Thank you for joining us for our Easter service. Thank you for joining us for Resurrection Sunday. I pray that God may bless you because he is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today is a day that we celebrate and we rejoice in who you are. And Father, if there's anybody watching right now who's had a tug on their heart to, to, to receive you into their life, to receive that relationship with you, Lord, I pray that you would, you would tear down those barriers, that you would tear down those walls, that you would remove our hard-heartedness and our stubbornness, our ego, and instead uh, put in us a sense of your compassion and of your grace and of the life that you offer us, Father. Give us confidence of our eternal life in you. Help us to trust you in times like these when we're uncertain and when we live in fear, Father. If Jesus can, can raise from the dead, if he can defeat death, there's nothing more that we have to fear because Satan has been conquered. And Lord, we rejoice and we praise you for that. We pray that you would use this time to further your kingdom, that people who never knew you would come to know you. We love you. Help us to love you more. Help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Help us to not hold anything back from you, but to give it all over to you, that you would be king, that you would be Lord of our lives, that you would be glorified in all things, Father. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you, my friends. He's risen.